for the week of March 18th, 2014. This is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Welcome to the show. I'm Stephen Lacey, Senior Editor with Green Tech Media in our nation's capital. Catherine Hamilton is also with me in downtown Washington. You know her as our resident policy wonk and the founder of the clean energy public policy consulting firm, 38 North Solutions. What is new and interesting this week, Catherine? Uh, I hate to say snow again, um, but let's just say there was not enough Guinness in the world to deal with 10 10 inches of snow on St. Patty's Day. I tried to convince the kids that shovels and scrapers are toys and that cleaning the car is really fun. That never worked for me. All right. Well, Jigger Shah is also here with us, this time behind the mic in Wisconsin. He's a clean energy investor and author of the book Creating Climate Wealth. What's got you in Wisconsin this week, Jigger? Well, you know, I grew up um, near here, actually, in northern Illinois. And so i um speaking here at a state of Wisconsin pension board meeting, but I got to see all my old friends. So that was fun. Nice. Any snow shovels for you out there? No, actually, you know, their snow is mild and tame. All right. Well, speaking of mild and tame, we are going to talk about the impact of renewables on the grid. And this week, there's a new study from GE and PJM, America's biggest grid operator that we're going to talk about. And it concludes that a lot of renewable energy in the system is really no big deal. Then we'll turn to Minnesota, where regulators have voted in favor of a value of solar tariff. Is it a positive sign for the future of net metering? In our last segment, we'll debate whether a proposed plan to buy out the entire U.S. coal industry is realistic. And at the end of the show, we'll tell you something you may not know. First to PJM, the world's biggest competitive wholesale electricity market. In a study released earlier this month, GE and PJM concluded that the territory could feasibly get 30% of supply from wind and solar by 2026 with only modest changes to supporting infrastructure and virtually no reliability problems. This follows a recent study from the International Energy Agency that found virtually any grid can handle a 45% penetration of wind and solar with appropriate balancing technologies. And once again, the experts are telling us that, no, the grid is not going to explode with lots of renewable energy. But as both of these studies do point out, there are inherent changes that need to come with high development scenarios. So it's not just business as usual. Uh, Let's look at what that business would be. Catherine, you're a resident expert on PJM. What caught your eye about this recent study? It was a couple years in the works, but uh, recently got released. Yeah, first, I wasn't enormously surprised. I mean, PJM is the largest, um, but also the most complex and most diverse of the regional transmission operating systems. And so they have a lot of different types of resources, a lot of different pockets of need. And their system, by becoming smarter, can more easily adjust to a lot of different things coming online. Um, They also have a leader in Terry Boston, the CEO, who has been very open to competitive markets, very open to um, new technologies coming into PJM, 
um, you know, at the same time that they're trying to dial back a little bit on demand response, but they've generally been really forward thinking. So I wasn't actually very surprised that this came out. In fact, it just affirmed what I had already thought to be absolutely true about PJM is that they can absorb a lot of renewables. They also have a lot of things in this, you know, standing in the wings waiting to come in, whether it's additional demand response and energy efficiency, but also um, more distributed generation, energy storage. And some of those were not even taken into consideration when they looked at that. So I think it's even more powerful when you think about all the demand side that could come in. But honestly, I wasn't enormously surprised. Yeah, I actually thought that last point that you made was kind of remarkable in that they showed there was really no major uh, reliability problems even just modeling a small amount of storage. They didn't really look at a lot of the demand side applications and technologies that could be integrated here. So even with such a narrow focus among a variety of different scenarios, they're showing pretty good results here. Yeah, and they're showing that um, when they, if they do put in storage or demand response or other things as spending reserves, that reduces the price on the system. So that just shows that as you begin to um, you know, use new, new technologies or innovative approaches to spending reserves and regulation products, that it's just going to get even more favorable for renewables. Well, that last point is the part that I focused in on. You know, what I, what I saw in the report was sort of a merger between the future and the past, where they tried to say that we needed an additional $10 billion worth of investment in transmission and grid upgrades, which my sense is, is that will be largely, you know, offset by the fact that we can add strategic storage in certain places, as well as demand response and load control. And so I think that this is, again, folks saying, well, we need to beefen up the grid to be able to handle all these renewables, when my sense is, is that they don't actually have to. Speaking of transmission and the use of distributed resources, uh, they had like 33 gigawatts of distributed solar modeled and then combined centralized solar and distributed solar actually made up more of the mix than wind did. So what's going on here, Jigger, in terms of what they're modeling? Is this accurate in terms of how you see the development shaking out or is this just saying, oh, this is one scenario we could look at? Yeah, I think when you think about the the high penetration wind study that was commissioned by Department of Energy back sort of in the 07 time frame, um, it really relied on very large uh, long line transmission lines being built. And now that those long line transmission lines seem to be just really just mired in red tape, I think a lot of folks are really dialing back how much new large wind capacity gets added to the grid. And now that solar has gotten really cheap, I think folks are replacing that large wind capacity with solar. And even with this $10 billion in transmission, we would see $15 billion in savings in, in fuel costs. So if that transmission were to be put there, we could pay for it with these fuel savings. Well, I think that's right. But I think it's important to understand the politics of this, which is that that I think that this notion that we should overbuild the grid and overbuild other things, including, for instance, in the report, it talks about how um, – this renewable energy will actually reduce costs during peak times and in congested areas, which means less profits for the natural gas peakers as well as the other traditional providers. And so I just think that during this transition, there's a lot of red meat in here for those guys to say, hey, wait a second, we paid for these assets and what you're trying to do here is actually diminish the value of our assets. 
Yeah, and if you look at in 2013, um, demand response saved consumers $11.8 billion in PJM. That's right out of the generator's pockets. That's money they would have made. Most of the grid was built with a 3x safety factor, so 300%. Now, this was back in the 60s, and we've now decided to put in air conditioning in a lot of places, etc. So a lot of that extra spare capacity has been used up. But one of my best friends from college uh, works for a company called Power World Corporation. And when, in the 90s, we decided to actually do deregulation, there was no technology on the grid to even know where the electricity was coming from. So if you bought electricity off the grid, you didn't actually know exactly who put it there uh, to figure out who paid for it. And so his company actually figured that out. So a lot of these um, innovations are really only less than 15, 20 years old. So a lot of reports have come out showing that you can have lots of renewable energy with fairly low reliability problems or no reliability problems, depending on how you integrate them. And uh, I'm just wondering what kind of impact that has on the regulatory level when people take a look at this stuff. Is this presented to regulators in a way that allows them to act on it? Yeah, I think that the tension right now is that there's a Tea Party movement around the country around the fact that people should have the right to do distributed energy. And regulators are very sensitive to that because they're also political animals and they're seeing that. These studies are now saying actually meeting that political pressure isn't negative for the grid. It's actually positive for the grid, which is important because there are a bunch of crackpots like Bjorn Lomberg or the Breakthrough Institute or even Bill Gates who keep saying that all of the stuff that we're promoting is actually not great and that we should all be doing small modular nuclear reactors. And so what you find is, is that that we actually do need these kinds of studies again and again and again to actually reinforce all of this negative feedback from the Bill Gates of the world. And from the regulator's perspective on the state side, they can't just make this stuff up. They often have to have a legislative fix or a legislative mandate or something that comes from their state legislators that says you need to look at this. And we can talk about this more when we think about what happened in Minnesota in the next story. But from you know this this report is not just going to rely on the states, but it's going to rely on FERC and what they're going to think about, you know, how they adjust the energy markets and, and think about competition out there and, you know, how does renewable energy participate. And so I think, you know, that's a very different set of issues when you're looking at the bulk power system and they're very focused right now on uh, reliability and security. I mean, one important one important point here, though, is that so FERC Order 755 has been issued. It really talks about the integration of demand response and storage and these kinds of things. Um, California, amazingly, has not integrated any of this stuff. So the Cal ISO um, has a bunch of pilot programs around storage or demand response or other things, but they are way behind the PJM in actually giving people clear price signals by which investors can be um, feel safe uh, around investing in these new assets on the grid. And so the PJM is light years ahead of everyone, including CalISO. Yeah, but they also have utilities that are fighting against this. So if you look at the utility models that exist in each of these ISOs, that really does set the tone for what they're going to be able to get done. Because in the ISO, there's a stakeholder process. And that's that consists of all of the stakeholders operating with that within that system. And if you have utilities that are that are opposed to some, you know, some set of technologies, whether it's demand response or something else, that's going to have a huge impact on what the ISO ends up being able to do. 
I was under the impression that they were considering how to implement FERC rules under the new storage target. They, they have to put together rules. But all I'm saying is that when what like I mean, I'm investing in demand response and other things in the marketplace. I can't tell what Cal ISO wants. They have no document that says here how we're going to here's how we're going to compensate investors going forward for the services that they provide on a regular basis. The PJM provides that and actually provides five years worth of you know predictions into the future as to what their regulations are going to be. Well, the CPUC is going through a process, and I, and Cal ISO is pretty involved. So I think I think you'll see that changing. They just they have an overlay of so many different policies out there, um, very different from PJM. The entire model is different. Let's just go quickly back to the PJM study because I think it addresses a number of myths about renewables integration. We've talked about a couple of them, and, and some of those are just that renewables don't displace fossil fuels that uh, they raise emissions because they don't necessarily displace fossil fuels, and that it causes fossil fuels to be more expensive as backup generation. And one of the big things that did stand out for me was that this renewable scenario, 30% renewables, actually displaced fossil fuels. So a common wisdom says we need much more gas to make up for intermittency, but under this scenario, we had 44% less gas fire generation and 21% less coal-fired generation. And because of the large geographic area that you talked about, Catherine, um, the variability issue is very addressable. And you know, not considering storage, we'd need about a gigawatt and a half of reserves for 113 gigawatts of renewables. So you know, looking at all that, we'd see about $15 billion in fuel savings. I think that's pretty remarkable. Uh, and then there are the big costs to cycling combined cycle gas plants under this scenario. So O&M costs increase by a factor of three under the high penetration scenario. And that sounds really high, but across the entire uh, spectrum of resources, it would only be about a 2% increase in production costs at around $370 million a year. And compared to that $15 billion in total savings through fuel cost reductions, you know, it starts not to look like a huge issue. And then finally, the, there's a 29% reduction in CO2 emissions under one of the scenarios and a 41% reduction in CO2 emissions under the scenario because of their offsetting of fossil fuels. So I think systematically it breaks down some of those myths that renewables don't actually have an impact and that they increase fossil fuel generation. Yeah, and I'll tell you what, this summer when EPA comes out with their existing power plant rule and their credit schemes for states, it is really smart for PJM to have this in place and to have to be able to call upon this study when they're uh, when they're looking at these rules. And I'd say like when I look at a study like this, I'm using caution as well because the European experience has shown us there are real challenges associated with high levels of renewables integration. As we've talked about, it's pretty clear that they aren't really technical. They have to do with pricing structures, with that high cost of legacy renewable energy subsidies, with some forecasting. It's not as simple as saying you put renewables on the grid, you get reliability problems. We do have methods of handling them both on the demand side and on the operations side. And I think a study like PJM's once again shows that you know, the best in the business recognize that. So High, highly recommended reading for people out there who want to get a sense for the issues that grid operators are dealing with. But I think, Stephen, just to highlight what you just said, I do think there are lots of people, including the folks that I mentioned earlier, who are desperately trying 
that can us that we are going to have a reliability problem if we move to high penetration renewables. They're trying to scare us straight. And I think the fact that we're, we keep having these studies coming out saying we don't have a technical problem, it's a business model problem, is so critical because consumers don't care about the business model problem. They only care about the technical problem. Absolutely. So let's move over to somewhere close to Jigger in Minnesota. Minnesota has been a strong leader in wind development, um, but over the last year it's emerged as a potential solar leader as well. Not in terms of overall installations, but in policy. Last year, lawmakers passed a solar energy standard requiring utilities to get 1.5% uh, of electricity from solar, much of it from community solar gardens. Uh, it's now the top community solar law in the country. But how to pay for it? Minnesota was actually one of the first states in the country to adopt net metering. And uh, continuing that pioneering tradition, the state has now developed a value of solar tariff, a market rate for solar that factors in its costs, its benefit to the grid, and its environmental attributes. Rather than using net metering, which is just a retail rate, utilities can apply for the value of solar tariff and calculate what it should be based on, um, based on their generation mix and customer mix. So it could be higher than retail rates in some territories. It could be lower in others. It's the first state in the country to develop this model following the municipal lead of Austin, Texas, and it could help inform other solar policies around the country. Jigger, how big of a deal is uh, Minnesota's value of solar tariff? It's enormous. I think that, you know, I've been working with Michael Noble and his team up there um, to support him with other documents for a while. And, um, you know, what he's done up there is nothing short of miraculous. I mean, I think you're talking about a state like Minnesota, the people don't think are huge into, into solar energy or or well-placed for solar energy, put in a 450 megawatt requirement in, you know, basically May of last year. And now they basically written the outline of the value of solar study so tightly that it requires uh, the value of solar study to include health benefits. It it requires it to include the cost of carbon based on EPA's uh, cost of carbon analysis. And so, you know, I think that this is one of the most well thought out uh, transitions from net metering to the value of solar study out there. And I think that what's interesting about the law is it is it actually allows the utility to choose net metering versus value of solar study. And my hunch is that the vast majority of the utilities are actually going to choose net metering because it's far simpler for their arcane systems than this value of solar tariff. Yeah, I spoke to um, Phyllis Reha, who is a former commissioner there. She was o over a decade a commissioner um, of the pu you know public utility commissioner. And she was telling me that you know, this had been percolating for a long time where the co-ops and the IOUs had been complaining about net metering. It wasn't really you know compensating properly. It was and helping the utilities, you know, be able to, um, you know, adjust given all solar rooftop. And so when the legislator, legislature flipped to, to be more favorable for renewables, they passed this legislation and said, okay, fine, let's try to figure out a substitution for net metering then. You know, you, you ask for it and handed it off to the Department of Commerce to do it. And so this long stakeholder process, which I think they really smartly did, where they did workshops, they brought all the stakeholders to the table, including Michael Noble and all of his guys, Jigger, as you said, to come together and say, all right, what do we want to include? So that it really became a process that everybody, even though... You know, Excel may not like the numbers they ended up with, but 
they, you know, they had buy-in the whole time. So they're going to end up accepting it and having to make a decision. But the key was that the legislature had to do something first. The The Public Utility Commission couldn't do anything just on its own. And I think you're going to have to start seeing this in other states where you're going to have to get the legislators involved to say, all right, here, let's do a study. Let's figure out how we're going to do this and come up with a process. And then the commissioners will be able to implement it. But as it, as it stood, they had to have that first step taken. Well, and this is what I outlined in my 2012 piece in Green Tech Media around let's make a deal. I think that the solar industry should learn from the experience in Minnesota and actually proactively go to the states where we have net metering and start pursuing this process. Because the challenge with doing what we do now, which is basically seeing how far we can take net metering but not offering this process to flip it, is that EEI and others – Um, and also NRDC are basically trying to undermine us and figure out, oh, how do we actually figure out how to, you know, like, you know, start charging solar for um, their use of the grid and all sorts of other things. And this is a proactive way for us to change the conversation towards a transition plan that I think is far more favorable for solar. Yeah, I was talking to Annie LePay of Vote Solar yesterday, and we were just going through some of the big net metering battles that had already taken place this year or that were about to take place. And Vote Solar and other groups have been very active in really pushing for a Public Utilities Commission study from independent groups to find the value of solar on the grid. But these are within the context of current net metering policies. And it doesn't sound like the solar industry is really pushing for an entirely new legislative process. I mean, obviously, Vote Solar and others are very supportive of what's gone on in Minnesota, but I haven't seen the big shift in saying, all right, let's just step back here and create an entirely new process on a wholesale level yet. And that, I mean, that's not exactly easy. It's very easy for me to sit here and say, yep, that's what they should do in the 21 states where net metering is under fire. But, uh, Certainly a good starting point there in Minnesota that could inform other states. I agree, and I just think it's important for the solar industry to wrap its brain around what's happening because a lot of folks are on autopilot with the net metering stuff, and I just think that with EEI partnering up with NRDC, I think it's really important for us to actually have a proactive approach so we're on the offense as opposed to the defense. Yeah. Yeah, and we mentioned this in our interview with Ron Rush, too. Remember when we asked him, aren't we going to have to think beyond net metering and come up with a construct that you'll, you know, that, that will be able to withstand, you know, the pressures that on all sides. And I think this, this gets at that. And Carl Rabago deserves a big shout out too. He was the one who really laid the foundation for the value of solar tariff there in Austin, Texas. And he's been heavily involved in the Minnesota process and has written that he's been very impressed with the process itself and how open it's been. So kudos to Carl for consulting on that and setting the groundwork there in Texas. And I think that his legacy is going to be to help push this in other states as well. Oh, Carl's been a huge champion, not only, um, you know, just just um, his own leadership, but also giving a tremendous amount of his time um, uncompensated to the industry to to uh, to help us here. So wrapping this conversation up, let's look at not what the solar industry should do, but what it can do. How realistic is it that the Minnesota model will be used in other states, Jigger? 
Well, it, nothing's inevitable. I mean, I've been working on it for two years now, um, and other folks have been working on it longer. I think my good friend Travis Bradford at Columbia University, I think, has been leading the charge on the academic side. My sense is, is that what has to happen is that Minnesota's got to come up with their number, and then all of the fighting that goes on has to move to the academic arena where we can actually come up with a process that's fair to all parties. And so you don't have these one-sided calculations in Arizona and, and San Antonio and other places, but you actually get something that's fair. And, um, and I think that process is going to take a full two years to play itself out. And so this will be a very slow-moving process, but one that I think lots of other states will adopt. All right, on to our third topic. Bill Koch, the third lesser-known billionaire Koch brother, said this week he was pulling out of the coal industry. His company, Oxbow Carbon, is a large distributor of petroleum coke, a byproduct of oil refining that can be used as a coal substitute. He also owns a large coal mine, but recently shut it down for safety concerns. Koch said this week that the coal industry had, quote, kind of died, unquote, blaming natural gas and a decline in productivity. To a lesser extent, he also blamed the Obama administration. Now, coal is certainly on its way out in this country, although we can't yet say it's dead. But what if we could do the exact opposite that Bill Koch is doing? Use the power of billionaires to buy out the entire U.S. coal industry and systematically shut it down, while compensating and retraining workers. This idea has been batted about privately within environmental groups, and this week a pair of environmentalists went public with the idea, pushing an op-ed in The Guardian calling for a $50 billion private buyout of coal assets in America with a plan to phase them out over the next 10 years. Economically, it seems absurd on its face. Who would spend so much money just to run their assets into the ground? But then again, there are tens of billions in health and environmental savings that could materialize. And if billionaires like Tom Steyer and Bill Gates are devoted to putting half their money into philanthropic causes, could this also be a climate investment for them to consider? Jigger, what's your reaction to the plan? Is there anything here of merit? You know, I've talked to several of my hedge fund friends and, you know, there is a lot of merit here, but not for the reasons that Gill and others pointed out. I think when you think about the original Wall Street movie with Michael Douglas and they go in and buy that airline and try to sell it for parts, that's what you'd be doing here. I mean, for $50 billion, you get access to a tremendous amount of land that has value. You also get access to a lot of water resources. You get a lot of access to other things that actually have a real asset value. Um, and so my sense is, is that if we allow a hedge fund manager or somebody else come to come in or encourage them, sorry, to actually do this, it would work. But it's going to be radically different from the sort of paying for this through the environmental benefits and the healthcare benefits uh, line that was taken in the Guardian article. Yeah, like who would do it? it would, would it be a hedge fund or a private equity firm? Or I'm trying to figure out yeah. who, who would do it. I think it'd be one of the big five. So it'd be TPG or Apollo, BlackRock, Blackstone, Carlyle Group. I mean, it's got to be one of those big guys. Um, but no, I mean, I think this is well within what they like to do. I mean, TPG bought TXU for 20-some billion dollars. And so so doing this is not something that the you know that is beyond the opportunity for these guys to do it. But I do think that the way in which this was written, which is the same problem I have with the divestment campaign and lots of other things, is that... This this concept of moral outrage is hugely important, but it's on one side of the argument. The other side of the argument, which is that this is the largest wealth creation opportunity on the planet, 
the thought process is completely different. You have to look at what the assets are for coal. And I do think there's an argument to be made that coal assets, for instance, they have transmission capacity that they could sell to other people. They have a lot of land around their coal plants that have access to that transmission capacity, which we could repurpose for anaerobic digesters or for um, you know solar and wind. Catherine, any reactions to it? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm thinking about all the people who've been in the coal industry who would love to have something different to do that's exciting, that doesn't have a negative impact on their health, that they can pass along to their children um, without their children leaving you know, West Virginia or wherever they're living um, because they can't drink the water. Um, so I feel like in, in addition to the transmission capacity, land, water resources, and some of that is going to need a lot of cleaning up, you have all these people out there who are really willing to work and want to do something new and different. And so I think you have a workforce that might not take that much to retrain to do something that could create uh, climate wealth, as Jigger says. So a lot of skepticism here. I think people are, are rightly skeptical of a plan like this. Don't we need coal for the steel industry, the cement industry, heavy industries? You know, what, this ignores the very real use of coal outside the electric power sector. Any reaction to that? Well, and that's part of what I was saying is that if you had a for-profit entity that bought this stuff, part of what they would acknowledge is that selling the coal to burn – um, at very low prices doesn't make any sense. The steel industry uses very high quality coal and they pay a much higher price for it. Um, and so you could see how the economics of the entire game would change if these coal, these investors just bought the coal, just mined the very best of it, um, used the same rail capacity that Warren Buffett owns, and actually you know, shipped it to their steel customers. But now 90% of the volume would go away, even though they would still get probably 50% of their existing revenues cause, and the profits, because that's where um, it comes from, is these higher quality efforts. It's not unlike other businesses. I mean, look at Solazyme in the biofuel space. Everyone thought they were going to produce gasoline and diesel, and they realized that's the lowest value product we could produce. Why not produce, you know, cos uh, materials for the cosmetics industry that used to be served by the oil industry and other high value items. And that's why Solazyme is doing so well as a stock. And so I don't think coal would go away. I just think the highest and best uses of it would rise to the top and all of the just rampant burning of it would go away. I was skeptical of the plan. I've heard a lot of environmental groups and folks I know talking about this idea privately. But the more I think about it uh, and the more I see that there's precedent for it in other industries and other businesses, the more intriguing it becomes. There, you know, I, I'm uh, not sold that this is really that realistic that someone will jump in here and do this. But regardless of the plan's flaws or the lack of detail and what they've outlined in this article, it's something new out there and it gets people thinking. So I'm supportive of getting it out there even if I'm pretty skeptical still. Yeah, and it makes people think beyond the status quo. As Jigger says, let's think about what we really want to use or need to use coal in and then try to quantify all these different values. So I think it gets us thinking differently, just as you say. All right. Well, let's think differently in our last segment and tell our listeners something they don't know. Catherine, do you have anything good this week? 
Oh, well, I have to credit one of my, uh, the partners in my firm, Isaac Brown, who brought this to my attention. You all may remember Nate Silver, who was really good at calling um, elections down to every single percentage correct. And, you know, I'm always fascinated by that, being the wonky person that I am. Well, his um, company was bought by ESPN. And he's, he, you know, he started in the sports business because, you know, if anybody needs stats, that's the business. Um, so if you, if if you look up 538, you have to spell out 538science.com. He has this great article about the weather this year. And we seem to talk about weather all the time. And it turns out that it hasn't been the coldest year in history, but it's been the most miserable. I think most of us can attest to that. But he does this great job of showing how there are more cold days, there are more extremely cold days, there's more snow in more places than usual. Um, Minnesota had the coldest year since 1874, but there were also places that were extremely hot and dry. So uh, the average didn't end up being too high, but it was definitely the most miserable. So I think everybody should look up uh, 538.com, take a look at that science article. And uh, he's got great stuff on that website anyway, even outside of science. Yeah, I haven't read that article, but I'll, and I'll check it out. I read his introductory article released yesterday in which he outlines what data journalism is in the 538 context and what he thinks opinion writers and other journalists are doing wrong when reporting on anecdote without proper data accumulation. And it's really good. I'm very impressed with what he's doing. I like what the folks at uh, Vox Media are doing, you know, Ezra Klein's new venture. And there's just so much interesting stuff going on in uh, explanatory and data journalism. I think we're reaching this new tipping point. So yeah, Nate Silver is a really good guy. I recommend everyone to read him. Jigger, anything uh, new and interesting this week? Well, I just wanted to highlight the uh, announcement that was made by Norway around uh, uh, putting around 5% of their total uh, pension fund, which is the largest pension fund in the world, uh, into renewable energy, which I think is a big deal. And it's something on the order of around $50 billion um, after already divesting from, let's say, 29 projects that you know they found uh, questionable on the moral side. Um, but I think it's going to be a huge deal, and it follows in the footsteps of Munich Re already doing that uh, with their own fund. Um, and so I think you're seeing a lot of folks doing this not because of Carbon Tracker and some of the flawed analysis by 350.org, but they're doing it because it's actually just a good investment. All right. Mine is a slight correction or just a clarification one of our listeners contacted me this week about our House of Cards segment a couple weeks ago, and he took issue with our speculation about who the real-world Raymond Tusk would be. We said uh, one of the Koch brothers or the Fanjul brothers, but as I just learned, uh, pointed out by listener Greer Maccabee, House of Cards writer Bo Williman said that Warren Buffett was actually a big inspiration for the character of Raymond Tusk. And it makes sense. Like, like Tusk, Buffett prefers to live... Uh, in relative seclusion, his his modest life in relative seclusion, even while using his money to influence politics. Um, but like every other scenario in House of Cards, it breaks down after a while. And when it comes to the power that Raymond Tusk wields in Washington, there's really no one quite like him living. Uh, and everything I've heard about Warren Buffett is that he's a kind, gentle guy, not like the Raymond Tusk we know from the show. But worth mentioning, I think a good clarification there. Well, I'm glad people take the show that seriously and us that seriously. <laughs> Absolutely. Good to know that it wasn't like a fact or figure that we got wrong. It was a House of Cards <laughs> reference. That's right. 
All right, well, that's it for the show. Time for the curtain call. You can find links to the stories we covered and a whole lot of good clean tech reporting at greentechmedia.com. You can also subscribe to this show on a variety of platforms, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and now Swell Radio, which is a really good app, and that's how I listen to a lot of my podcasts. If you have comments, suggestions, corrections about House of Card references, send them to me, Lacey, L-A-C-E-Y, at greentechmedia.com. I'll pass them around to the team. And heads up, due to a tough week for me, we will not be recording next week. But uh, the following week on April 1st, we'll be doing a live show here in D.C., so look out for the release of that show on April 2nd. And that's it. Jigger, have a great trip in Wisconsin. We'll see you in D.C. on April 1st. Thanks. Well, for most of our listeners, I'm going to be in San Francisco Thursday night for the Vote Solo fundraiser. And so if you're there, I'd love to see you. And I'm glad we're not recording next week so that all the rumors that come out of that you know, that party don't uh, get onto our podcast. Oh, they'll find a way on here somehow. <laughs> I'm super bummed that I can't make it. It's such a good party. Catherine, any parties for you this week? No, not really. But I look forward to seeing you guys in a couple weeks. It's a party here every week. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next time. Thank you.